0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: I think we've all been in a situation where we say to ourselves, like, I'd like to do this, but we, we, it makes it so much different when you know someone who has done that. When you know someone who's, and you have that model, you have that example, you know, hey Gary, did it. Gary's not that smart. He can do it. Well, then I can. Like, it's that kind of natural, intuitive, emotional feeling of this is a real possibility. Like, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but it wasn't until I was in college that a friend of mine was like, hey, "I moved to Hollywood, and now I'm working on this and that." And as soon as he said that, it was like, "Oh, that's real!" Like, oh, you know, it, I I would always love movies, but I, you know, it, it, <laughs> theoretically, I knew people did that. But it just didn't seem like it was on the menu of options for me and then to have a, a, somebody I know say, oh, no, like I'm doing this now. All of a sudden, it, like that, that, that that checkbox popped up on my list now. It's like, oh, no, you you can do this. Like, it's it's doable. You know, I think breaking through that barrier where theoretically, you know, it's possible versus practically, I know what steps I can take to get from, you know, A to B. It's just a, it's a huge, huge difference just in our thinking.
2: It is my pleasure to have you here. So you have a new book out called Plays Well With Others, which, as I was telling you, is probably my number one book recommendation uh, for the year for anybody who's listening. By far, one of the most interesting books I have read, and we will get into it. But based on the content of the book and the subject matter, I wanted to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school, and how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made with your life and your career?
1: Interesting question. i, I definitely was part of the outsiders, uh, not, not total, not total nerd, not the, not the goth kids, but, you know, just kind of the outside little group and, you know, was definitely wasn't one of the, one of the cool kids. And it was, I went to a very small high school, only like graduating class of like 130. So I think it was, you know, I don't know if it had that much effect on me in, in that way, except that, except that it does help you see the distinction between like, who the kind of cool kids in high school are and yeah i'm not really like that so i i did never think I'd, i i didn't ever think i'd be a, a part of that but yeah i i think probably i think my underlying personality probably determined that more than, than necessarily the group i was in
2: yeah well and being in a high school of 130 people uh, especially given that so much of your work Seems like it's about social science and human beings. I mean, how did that inform your worldview about people? Like, what did you learn from being in an environment that was so small? Because that's not a typical high school for most people.
1: No, it was. It was. It, it. kind of highlighted things. I mean, it's different when. I mean, people who in high school like over you know over a thousand only graduate class. You know, at least the first year, or so you might not know everybody. Versus you know, hundred and thirty, everybody. Everybody kind of has a read on almost everybody else because it's, it's small enough. But, you know, for me, for, for the book, it's like I was never great with relationships. You know, I'm, I'm, that was never my strong suit, never my focus. And so I think, I think that was difficult in the sense of being unnatural to me. But on the other hand, I think given what I do, kind of stress testing ideas with social science, it did allow me to take that perspective of being like an anthropologist from another planet where I'm like looking from a distance and saying, like, okay, how does this operate? Because, you know, I I don't really feel like I'm a part of it. I do feel like an outsider, so maybe that'll allow me to, to kind of give it the Jane Goodall treatment, you know?
2: hmm Yeah. As far as, as career paths, I mean you and I both know this. This is not something that we end up in by choice. Usually it's kind of this, you know, nonlinear trajectory that puts us here by accident. Uh did your parents encourage you to pursue any particular career paths or give you advice about making your way in the world?
1: I mean my parents were my parents were neither of my parents went to college. Uh both my parents were were, were pretty blue collar and they wanted more than anything for me to go to college and, you know, be a doctor or lawyer, like, you know, that, that was their ambition. And, uh, and I kind of, I <laughs> didn't really go that path. I took a, I took a more creative route. I, I left college and went straight to Hollywood. So it was, it was weird. I think they, they, they wanted me to go the professional, uh, the professional route and I went more the artistic route and You know, it's, it's a struggle. I mean, it was, it was, they were always very supportive, but I could tell they, they, they wanted that brass ring of like traditional status, career, professionalism. And that just wasn't me. And I kind of knew that, knew that from the beginning. And I have to say, it did feel really good to, you know, achieve a certain level of success and to be able to have them feel like, you know, okay, he's safe, you know, he, 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 he did well. You know, even though he didn't go the route that we we wanted necessarily, like, you know, he he did OK. And that meant a lot to me because I I think there were certainly times when they were worried about me.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, I didn't grow up in a, a blue collar family I mean, I grew up the son of a college professor. And this is something I asked Alec Ross, who had spent a lot of time working in blue collar jobs and then eventually found himself, you know, in charge of technology, international technology policy for the White House. What do you think it is that those of us who only kind of see, you know, blue collar workers through the media misperceive about their lives and, and what they're like as people? And then, you know, how is it that as somebody who grew up in a blue collar family, you have this very clearly um, strong intellectual drive, given the subject matter of your books? I mean, I've read, you know, the articles you've written. I read your previous book. Where does that come from? I
1: mean, I, I think it comes from the fact that, you know, my, my parents didn't have a- didn't really have a choice, like you know, just the environments they they grew up in, you know, you know, where their backgrounds, they didn't have the option. And what was great was they gave me the option. But they thought that I think my values would have immediately been their values, and that I would have immediately sought, you know, traditionally traditional status, you know, jobs like doctor, lawyer, something like that. And given that freedom to explore, given that freedom, you know, my intellectual interests and my artistic interests you know, I pursued them. And so having that freedom and that flexibility, I immediately figured out in high school, you know, I, I knew since I was 15, I wanted to be a writer. And I was very focused on it. And because of the freedom that, you know, they gave me, and like, I, I felt like it was doable. And, I, and my guess is that for a lot of people in blue-collar situations, whether it's, you know, financial, um, social circle, they don't feel like it's a possibility or at the very least, you know, even if they really want it, they don't know how to bridge that gap. Like, how do I get from here to there? Because, you know, I think we've all been in a situation where we say to ourselves, like, I'd like to do this, but we, we it makes it so much different when you know someone who has done that, when you know someone who's, and you have that model, you have that example, you know, hey, Gary, did it. Gary's not that smart. He can do it. Well, then I can. Like, it's that kind of natural, intuitive, emotional feeling of this is a real possibility. Like, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but it wasn't until I was in college that a friend of mine was like, oh, yeah, "I moved to Hollywood, and now I'm working on this and that." And as soon as he said that, it was like, "Oh, that's real!" Like, oh, you know, it, I, I I would always love movies, but I, you know, it, it, <laughs> theoretically, I knew people did that. But it just didn't seem like it was on the menu of options for me. And then to have a, a, somebody I know say, oh no, like I'm doing this now. All of a sudden it like that, 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 that checkbox popped up on my list now. It's like, oh no, you, you can do this. Like it's, it's doable. You know, I think breaking through that barrier where theoretically, you know, it's possible versus practically, I know what steps I can take to get from, you know, A to B. It's just, a, it's a huge, huge difference just in our thinking.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, two questions come from that. I mean, in some cases, it legitimately probably isn't possible, right? Because I think that this is one of the things that I have been very um, hypercritical of in the past probably year or so, as I mentioned to, you know, when I was talking about my book is that we have this sort of anybody can do anything they want to do if they put their mind to it, sort of mythical narrative that ignores context uh, in a lot of prescriptive advice where And this is something I've talked about on the show before. Like, I realized that when my parents would give me advice about pursuing careers, they always encouraged us to choose things that were secure and stable. And in the early years of doing this, I always felt that that advice was narrow-minded and misguided until I understood the context from which they were giving that advice. When you grew up in a country like India, particularly when they did, your life choices were binary. It was poverty or security. And I don't think that that's not real for people even today.
1: I mean, no, there's always the issue of context. There's always the issue of personal ability. I mean, you know, it's like some, some people, you know, some people have off-the-charts math skills, other people don't. Like, that person's probably not going to win a field medal and, you know, you know be, a, be a PhD mathematician. I mean, you know, it's it, having that openness, for me at least, allowed me to say, like, where do my skills lie, where, where do my abilities lie, and then build them. But I think, yeah, for context... You know, it is a huge, huge issue. And I think like as I talk about in the book is the, the, the issue of our personal networks, you know, are huge. They can be they can be an even bigger factor than underlying personality. It's like underlying personality, like big five traits, make a big difference. But the truth is that's that's not everything. Context, you know, is huge. The more accurate thing isn't to say like, oh, I'm an introvert or oh, I'm you know, agreeable, so therefore it's always I am and what that trick in this situation. you know some people yes. are more introverted with friends and perhaps they're more extroverted you know at a, at a party or the reverse. So I think that issue of context, you know, is really underrated, and a lot of people need to need to think more about it. I think it's just not a lever most people feel comfortable pulling or being deliberate about because it can feel sleazy or like social primary. To try and deliberately manipulate your 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 network in that way, but it doesn't mm. doesn't have to be like that. But I totally agree with you. I think context not only is it a big factor, <clears throat> but it just doesn't get discussed enough.
2: Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I also think that it, it kind of forces you to face sort of harsh and uncomfortable truths. Because I very distinctly remember when I graduated from business school in two thousand nine, I ended up moving back to my parents' house, and my dad and I are you know driving to Costco for his daily like Costco run. <laughs> And he loves Costco. The man is like the unofficial brand ambassador for Costco. He's probably <laughs> made them hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years. Um, but he tells me not everybody can be the next Steve Jobs. And I got pissed off because, you know, it's like, oh, you wouldn't tell my sister that she can't be any kind of doctor she wants. And it's funny because, like, I just remember looking through my my articles. I'm like, wait a minute. I wrote an article titled, you're probably not going to be the next Steve Jobs, Oprah, Beyonce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, You know, the very thing that pissed me off, I just found myself agreeing with because I realized he was right. And like, yeah, I suck at computer science. (laughs) Um, you know, and I'm not Steve Jobs level brilliant. Like I finally had to come to terms with that. It's like, yeah, there are certain people who are going to achieve at that level. And I remember we had Justine Musk here. Um, and I, you know, she wrote that article, which you probably, I'm sure have read about extreme success. And she said, this is not something that you can learn. And. You know, she said, I don't want to get all deterministic, but I, I do think that the, the idea that genetics play a role or, or genetic determinism is really kind of frowned upon in self-improvement circles. But I'm like, you know what? I'm a scrawny fucking Indian. I'm never gonna play in the NBA, no matter how yeah. much I practice. Yeah.
1: No, I think this is it's it's a huge issue. I mean, especially in this self-improvement everything that she said. It's like nobody wants to talk about that. I mean, even on my on my blog, you know, I think David Epstein's Book the sports gene is probably the only time I've, I've really addressed the issue uh, of of genetics because it's something we can do something about. You know I don't yeah. I don't want to I don't want to deny its importance. Its importance is is huge, and I get into that in my first book. But like I you know it's definitely a factor. But the, to me that that becomes part of the process. Becoming part mm-hmm. of the process is realizing your strengths and doubling yeah. down on them. Where instead of just saying anybody can do anything. That's ridiculous. You know, it's like we all, we all know at the tail end of the distribution, you know, in any area, there's going to be outliers, you know, people who can run rings. around. I'm not going to be beating Magnus Carlsen in chess. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's not going to happen. Because again, you're, you're yeah. talking about people who are global phenoms, you know. in, a, in a yeah. But, you know, but I think to give people hope, honest hope, you know, the issue of, oh, you're not going to be the next Steve Jobs. It's like, yeah, but... Is, is the next Steve Jobs going to be anything like Steve Jobs? Are we fighting the last war? You know, in the sense of Steve Jobs, you know, was, you know, coming up in the 70s, 80s, you know, 90s. Like, are those same traits, you know, those same abilities, what is necessary? Now, certainly some things like ambition and drive and persistence, you know, carry over. But other knowledge, other skills it changes dramatically. You know, I mean, no, no no, human being, you know, 100,000 years ago, you know, uh, you know, having a natural talent for mathematics and computer science wasn't really paying off on the savannah. You know, so, I mean, things change. Times change. So I think there really is that fighting the last war issue where, oh, they're not going to be this. Yeah, but is that going to be the, the, the killer trait, the killer app, you know, five, 10 years from now? And can you maneuver, create a niche for yourself where your skills do shine. That's a process of personal discovery that people need to like proactively, it can happen serendipitously, but proactively engage in to create a path for themselves, you know, versus if you keep trying to be the thing that was successful 20 years ago, especially in the modern age, you know, that's, that's, that's generally comical. I mean, there's, there's some areas that haven't changed, but No, we need to be, you need to dive deep and think about like, where are my strengths? Where do they connect? You know, rather than, yeah, exactly. You're not going to be the NBA.
2: Yeah. Well, I think what's funny is how often these success stories use outliers as our role models for possibility. And you read about that, even Paul Graham in his essay on wealth spe- specifically says, you know, using outliers as role models is not a good idea. Bill Gates is an exception. And not only that people seem to forget he was the beneficiary of one of the most spectacular blunders in business history. Oh. Uh, like you said, he would have been successful, no question, but not nearly as rich as he is today.
3: Oh,
1: no, I mean, you know, when people look at Bill Gates, it's like, you know, it's the intersection of a lot of, you know, a lot of different things. I mean, uh, absolutely timing. you know it's like the, the fact that he was alive right then was a big factor number two his family was already extremely wealthy you know uh, you know not obviously not Bill Gates wealthy but you know yeah. had a lot of resources going in and also dude smart I mean uh, you know I've, I've, I've read a biography it was like the first time he took the SAT he didn't score a perfect score so he took it a second time and then did like I yeah. mean you know these three things you know, and I'm sure there are many, many others, but these three things are incredibly rare occurrences to have them all happen. So, you know, we can do things to try and, you know, like engineer that we're in the right circumstances, given our abilities, given our background, given our possibilities. But I, I don't think we're often encouraged enough to, to do the proactive work to think about that and to try and, you know, A, B test in our life to find those right circumstances. It's treated much more like a conveyor belt, but the conveyor belt doesn't actually go anywhere. So you kind of, you kind of have to decide you know, on your own in the end. But there's there's no there's no prescriptive path that's laid out for it.
2: Yeah. Well, let's talk briefly uh, about one part of your previous book, and then we'll, you know, get a little bit into your Hollywood career and then talk about the new book. But um, I think that that makes a perfect segue to asking you about this uh, essay that you wrote, which I think I've probably seen over and over again. (laughs) I think it probably got picked up hundreds of times, uh, which was about why valedictorians don't become CEOs. because I think that's a perfect you know, way to talk about education. I mean, you have this very unusual perspective and you seem to have done a lot of research because I have always felt that the education system is a one-size-fits-all solution that mismatches talent with environment. So you end up getting average performance for the most part. I mean, and that's you know coming from me, the guy who's been fired from every job I've ever had, where I realized people consistently mismatched my skills and my talent with my environment. And as a result, I was written off
1: think that you're absolutely right, because the, the issue is we do have a one size you know, fits all kind of education system, at least, you know, up to high school. And, you know, we we see that, like, basically, when you look at SAT scores and standardized tests, those are effectively IQ tests. You know, it's like that's what the research shows. You know, meanwhile, grades in high school are actually a much better test of conscientiousness, your ability to follow the rules. And looking at those two, you can see, hey, yeah, sure, some people have a very high IQ and they're very high, score very high in conscientiousness and they do great on standardized tests and school. But a lot of people, there's a more of a gap there. You know, school and school grades are generally testing people's ability to follow rules, which in general, if you want to do pretty good, um, you know, it's a great way. So that's what the, the research showed in terms of the valedictorian study is that those, those they went on to do very well. But what they didn't do is become exceptional because they were following the rules. And again, that kind of fighting the last war issue, you know, we have to break the rules. We have to just see, like, what are the other possibilities? We always hear about disruption. Well, you know, people who you know are the valedictorian usually aren't going to be disrupting anything. They're going to be supporting the current system. So they do very well, but they don't usually turn into the people who really overturn the system, who lead the system, who become artists. And, you know, that's the first chapter of Barking Up the Wrong Tree. And I I point to a lot of other research showing, you know, again, that same principle that outliers are different. They are not, you know, perfectly compliant and checking all the boxes. Because in school, you have to get, if you want to be an you have to get A's in every subject. And that kind of basically limits passion. If you are somebody who is exceptionally passionate about, you know, math, you have to stop studying math, practicing math to study history and English and everything else, you know, versus the career world is the absolute reverse. Your career world, you know, if you're going to go to work for Google, you're great at math, you're great at computer science, awesome. They don't care if you know anything about history, you know. So, and if you're starting a startup, again, you know, you can hire people to, to perform in the areas that you have weaknesses around. People can give in an assistant, you know, who can help them be organized if they're not organized. But you have to be really good at that thing, you know, and that's what we're seeing again and again, is that the people who really double down on their strengths, those are the people who have more of the potential for that outlier success versus the well-rounded. But what what well-rounded means is probably not at the, you know, tip of the spear, in any one arena. So you do pretty good, but they're generally not for people who change the world.
2: Yeah. yeah. there's something earlier you said uh, about college, uh, about sort of not knowing that what you wanted to do was on the menu of options. And something I have said over and over again is that college course catalogs are like a fast food menu where the options in front of you blind you to the possibilities that surround you. Because if you go to, you know, a school like a Berkeley or a Stanford or places that, you know, most of the people I know went to school, You kind of have this predetermined career path where it's like, hey, here are the majors that you can choose from. The only difference between this and high school is there are, you know, quite a few more. But what's interesting is that you basically have 100 majors that lead to four potential career paths (laughs) that lead to like three potential jobs. And it's like, okay, you pick one of these and you either go to law school, med school, get a MBA uh, or go to graduate school. And that's pretty much it. Why do you think so many people miss it in college? Like, they don't have that moment that you did? Because I sure as hell
1: did.
4: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello?
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at
2: your fingertips. And like I spent years trying to conform to a system in which I was never going to thrive. Like I literally remember to this day, walking to a career fair uh, the first week at school at Berkeley, which is ridiculous. No freshman should be going to a career fair for any of you who are (laughs) freshmen listening to this. You've got your whole life in front of you and you've hardly lived any of it. And this guy tells me we don't hire any English majors and I didn't ever take a class after that that I didn't think would help me get a job. And the irony of course is I've never interviewed for a job at Accenture and they probably
1: would never hire me. I mean, for me, i I <laughs> I am not gonna necessarily chalk it up to any flattering characteristics on my part. I think part of it was, you know, um basically, you know be, being very low on the person personality trait of agreeableness. You know, I'm very quick to kind of dispute things or challenge things, so I I wasn't immediately on board and compliant. But the other thing was I I think I was um, I think I was pretty naive and you know I can kind of say now, hey, that seemed to work out for me, but I wouldn't recommend it. Like, I treated college like education. Like, like when you're talking about it, that's kind of this assembly line towards, you know, towards getting to a job. I didn't really see it like that. Like, I looked at it as, oh, cool, I'm going to learn stuff. i have interested in philosophy. You know, there's no, like, what do you do, graduate and, like, find a mountaintop and contemplate joblessness? <laughs> like, there, there's no, there's no like, <laughs> end result. Like, anybody who majors in philosophy, either you become a philosophy professor or you go to law school. But I wasn't thinking about that. I was just like, great, I'm here to learn. And I had one of my freshman year, I remember, one of my professors asked me, why are you majoring in philosophy? And I was like, well, because if I don't know anything about that, then, like, you know, I don't know anything about anything." you know, and yeah. he was, and of course, as a college professor, you know, he liked that answer. I don't think my parents liked that answer. My parents, you know, thought I was crazy. It's like, here I, here I am, I have the opportunity of going to an Ivy League school, and I'm choosing a major in philosophy. It's like, I was like, what are you doing? You know, I mean, so, like, it's 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 like taking a fantastic cut of me, and then just making it well done. You know, like, yeah. it's just like, you're killing it. And my, you know, my parents weren't thrown about that, but I just treated it like, hey, great, I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn some stuff. And like I said, I, I think the vast majority of people that do and did, you know, think I was very naive and I, and I was naive and, you know, it, it paid off for me, but there was no guarantee of that. I, I can't recommend to other people like, oh, absolutely take this path. Like, it'll work. No, the, the other path <laughs> is safer because, yes, it is safe. It does. It does work. You know, you may not you may, you may not you, you may not find fulfillment, but you'll be able to pay your electric bill, um you know, and. For me, I, I just treated it like, great, I'm going to learn philosophy. I'm going to take classes that interest me. And, you know, and no. I did not really think about it because I still had this at that point, very delusional idea. It's like, oh, well, I'm going to be a writer. So this is fine. It's, it's an issue. I, I was not thinking about the, 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 that whole like money and putting food in your mouth. thing.
2: Yeah. Well, it's funny because I feel like in a lot of ways, um, you know, elite schools, like Ivy League schools, even places like Berkeley are paradoxically sort of breeding grounds for conformity, even though you have like the smartest people in the world there.
1: I mean, well, absolutely. Again, the, the, you know, a lot of those people, I mean, if you were to straight up measure IQ, you might get slightly different results, but it's like all those people did well in high school. And, you know, high school is basically a test for can you show up on time? Can you do what you're told? You know, and that that is a big, big part of it and so no i absolutely like that that is that is what you see i mean some people some people crack you know crack through you know and and do something very different or some people are successful quick enough that they can get past kind of a safe career and then they move on to something you know bigger but no i think largely you're right
2: yeah so how the world do you get from you know ivy league school to working in hollywood uh, to writing books. Like tell me about the time in Hollywood. Like, you know, what did you do there? And there? how in the world did it lead you down to, you know, this path of blogger, author, writer?
1: I mean, I, I just literally, uh, you know, I, I once I was, my friend David was working in Hollywood. So between my junior and senior year, he was like, Hey, why don't you come out? You can do some internships. And I was like, sure. So I like, went out there for the summer? But basically slept on his couch. You know, did like, I, I did like two or three internships at the same time. And then I was like, yes, this is what I want to do. So I like finished up my final year in one semester and immediately moved out. And I didn't know how I was going to pay a proposal. I was not even thinking about that. Uh, But, you know, I, I got lucky pretty fast in terms of like writing basically after I was out there for a year, I got an agent after two years, I sold a script. And after three years, I had two movies made, but this was all like small indie stuff. And, like I managed to like eke out a living, but I was in this really weird, I was in this really weird, very small uh demographic that nobody ever talks about, where like in Hollywood, you know, 98, 99% of people experience no success. You know, like one percent of people like are the people you see in movies and TV. And I was in that very narrow band where I consistently worked, I could pay the bills but I wasn't winning Oscars and making millions of dollars. And so that is actually the toughest place to be because the next decision is very hard. If you're winning Oscars and making millions of dollars, you keep doing what you're doing. And if you can't sell a script or get an acting job to save your life, after a few years, you wise up and leave. I was always in this like difficult situation where I was saying like, God, what am I supposed to do? And, you know, I'm like, should I? And it was always very difficult for me. But you know, eventually, uh, I I did. After, after about ten years, I was like, you know what? I don't, I don't know if this is ever gonna happen, or if I'm just always going to be wondering. And so, oddly enough, I I went and got an MBA, and I was it was it was like a comedy. It was literally like a comedy film, like total fish out of water. Here's this guy. majored in philosophy, worked in Hollywood writing like action movies and kids movies for ten years, and now I'm in business school with a bunch of people who majored in business in undergrad or used to be engineers. And like, I, I'm literally first day of MBA school. I'm opening up my laptop and I I fire up Excel, and it actually gave me that window that's like, you've never used this application before. Would you like a tour? And I'm like, yeah, this probably isn't going to be a thing, but it was. It was actually in business school that I first got exposed to social science because I took a class on negotiating and I was really interested in that. And then after I graduated and was unemployed because I didn't want to take a standard job, I did my internship at Nintendo, which was a good fit because they were doing some fun, creative stuff. But uh, that's when I started my blog. And that was in 2009. And I started looking at social science research, posting it up on the Internet. And my blog blog. of grew from there but meanwhile i was working a job in marketing in the video game industry which was which was cool but it was a big shift for me to no longer be on the creative side of things for me to be the suit was really strange and i was embedded in a studio so i was surrounded by the creative team but it was funny to not be one of the creatives and that Mm. was tough for me that that internally that that caused me a lot of emotional difficulty but Every day I was doing the blog, you know, and video game launches are insane, so like I was just not getting a lot of sleep, working really hard, and uh, I you know had some fun working in the video game industry then I, I worked on uh, I worked at irrational, I worked in the Bioshock franchise I, I worked in the right faction franchise, I had to do some really cool stuff, but uh, eventually the blog blew up, and so it just kept growing and growing, and I was like. You know what this is this is more what i want to be doing this is this is the writing i kind of put my like i want to be a i wanted to be a writer since i was 15. i got to put that aside to get a business school and work in video games and it was it was strange to 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 leave that and then kind of come back to that and so uh in 2013 i quit my job uh i you know, focused on the, uh, focused on the blog, it kept growing. I started getting syndicated by, you know, Time Magazine, Business Insider, and The Week, and, and then everybody kept telling me, you gotta write a book, you gotta write a book. And so, in 2014, like, I had already shifted from, okay, I'm writing stuff personally in high school, and then it was, okay, I'm writing screenplays in Hollywood, and then, okay, I'm, now I'm writing blog posts, and now I'm like, okay, I need to teach myself how to write a nonfiction book. And <laughs> so, I sat down and like you know kind of reverse engineered like okay what do nonfiction books of the type what type do I like what type are successful what's the Venn diagram overlap what do I contribute to that in terms of style and I like broke it down scientifically and said okay here's what I want to do here's how I'm gonna do it and I spent months writing the proposal and um, you know then I started working on barking up the wrong tree came out in twenty seventeen and you know, that was, that was kind of the journey from, uh, from college to Hollywood, to video games, to, uh, to blog, to book.
2: Yeah. Well, now you see why I told you I would need two hours to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, talk to me briefly about your writing process, because, you know, you were telling me like even going through this book, it was excruciating and I promise we'll get to the book right after this. <laughs> uh, but the, the thing that I think really struck me, the times that I've come across your blog, and I, I noticed a handful of writers seem to have this tendency down to an art form. I would probably say you and James clear really, um, have this really ab- amazing ability to, uh, one, write in a way that is clear. Resonant, but also incredibly useful uh, to the point where, I mean, I, I remember looking at your blog, I'm like, what is this guy doing that he's getting like thousands and thousands of shares on these blog posts? Because I'd come across your blog many times over the years just searching for random things. And I was like, who the hell is this guy? Uh, so, I mean, what goes into this that allows for that? And why is it that you have you know, people who just linger in obscurity for years? Because I know there are re- writers who are far more talented probably than you and I will ever be. Who are lingering in obscurity?
1: I mean, I, I, I don't think I have any magic power. I think that you know the thing I focus on initially is just like finding the research because everything I'm writing is you know self improvement from you know peer reviewed science or occasionally like unquestionable experts, and I really focus on kind of like what's that bedrock. Where is it coming from? You know, what's the insight? And then, you know, it's just clarity. Because for me, everything I, I write is, you know, I, I, I write with a voice that's very conversational, very accessible. I try to make everything a balance of clarity and entertaining, make it fun, you know, make it, make it readable. Because that's the crazy thing is when I first started looking at a lot of the social science stuff, because I was going through this, like, difficult transition, you know, in terms of having, you know, gone from a philosophy degree to an MBA, from being, you know, a writer to working in marketing. And I was asking myself some big questions. You know, the guy who got the philosophy degree was now all of a sudden, you know, head on, like, dealing with this. Like, what am I doing with my life? What do I want to be doing? It's, it's kind of upended what I thought would happen. And I, when I started looking at the social science, I started looking for answers. You know, that was that was really what this was for me. And I was shocked to find that so many of the questions that we ask ourselves, they have been answered, like not perfect answers, but like, you know, we wonder about happiness. We wonder about meaning. We wonder about relationships. We wonder about love, friendship. Like a lot of research has been done, but nobody sees this stuff. You know, it's all locked up in every towers and it's written in a way that like, you know, makes legalese look interpretable. And, you know, so I thought the issue there was like finding the good stuff, finding the answers, and then making it accessible, you know, just making this stuff comprehensible to people. And I think even a lot of nonfiction books still don't try and bridge that gap because I think there's in a lot of nonfiction books, especially in self improvement, there's, I mean, there's the total crap where they're just telling you what you want to hear and it's not legitimate. But then I think even the ones that are more legit, I think there's kind of an inferiority complex because you're not the PhD. You're not the guru. You're delivering it. And so there's this desire to come across as legitimate and serious. And, and I think that backfires. Whereas me, I kind of, I treat it, I just try to be honest and funny in the sense of, hey, like, I, I mean, I say in place of with others, I, I say, this is not, I'm a guru, so do what I do book. This is, a, I didn't know <laughs> what the hell I was talking about. So I ask people who are smarter than both you and me. Like yeah. I, I try and I don't try and, you know, strike a pose. I'm saying like, Hey, I, let's go on this journey together. Come on. You and me, we don't know what we're doing. We both basically kind of want the same thing here. Let's figure this crap out. And I promise you, like they've done the hard work in terms of the research. I'm going to make this accessible and I'm going to make it fun. Like, you know, so let's, let's kind of go on this journey together and I'm going to treat it conversationally. It's going to be like, we're hanging out, we're talking, and if something seems like BS, man, let's, I'm going to call it out, and we're 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 going to laugh. We're going to laugh. We're going to have fun. And we're going to figure this out. And that's kind of the the attitude. I don't. I don't. I think a lot of stuff is struggling to come across as professional and mm-hmm. trying to change their style versus like I just really try and be me uh, when I'm writing. Yeah.
2: Well, let's get into the book. I mean, I think the subtitle really struck me, you know, the surprising science behind why everything you know about relationships is mostly wrong, considering how many you know people I've had here to talk about relationships, like the ongoing joke with some of our listeners is that every guest that Srini has is a reflection of some problem that he's trying to solve in his life. That's, that's the old and
1: joke. It's not research. It's me-search.
2: Yeah. Well, and it's funny because there was like this steady stream of like dating experts. And when I said that on, uh, you know, on a Facebook update, somebody replied back saying, who's this week's relationship? I'm dating expert. But <laughs> um, what, uh, what, you know, and what made this sort of the natural follow-up to barking up the wrong tree? Like I why mean, this book? Why now? I,
1: look, I'm with you, man. I think, I think if you were to look at my blog in terms of the like tree rings, I think you'd see the same thing you just described in your podcast where it's like, oh, oh, oh you know, Eric's talking about you know, like different, like big questions than dating. And then, oh, all of a sudden there's all this stuff on management. I guess that's when he was working in marketing. And like, (laughs) you know, you can literally see that. But, you know, for, for me, I, I, I like for barking up the wrong tree. I knew there was a bunch of contradictory stuff around success. I was coming out of business school. I'm looking at all this advice people are getting. And I know some of this stuff isn't true. You know all these maxims we grew up. You know, nice guys finish last. It's not what you know, it's who you know. You know, is it is it work, work or work-life balance? These are big questions, and the pat answers we get, like I know that either they're not true or they're not always true. And I'm like, I'm looking at this research, I decided to stress test it. And in in doing this, I remember there was a Freud quote where Freud, paraphrasing, he basically said, you know, everything comes down to like you know, like work and relationships, like work in your personal life. Those are the two fundamental areas and so after barking up own trade you know i kind of decided to take the same formula apply it to relationships you know because first of all was it wasn't once again it was an area of interest to me because it was not an area i would ever really been very good at you know and i i knew there was real power there i knew there was a real question there and it was like there's this big kind of pen and teller aspect to it for me because I'm like looking at most relationship books and I'm like, I kind of want to take a bath. Like I want to, I'm like, ah, I'm like, this is all, it's like, I'll tell you what you want to hear. Crap, I know there are some exceptions to these rules. Nobody wants to talk about them. So I'm like, no, like I'm going to use the same kind of format I used for Bark because Bark kept the wrong tree was the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. And so for this, I was like, great, let's do it again. Mythbusters, man, stress test this. You know, what the, like, does love conquer all? Is a friend in need a yeah. friend indeed? Is no man on island. Can you judge a book by its cover? Like, let's test these maxims because I know, I know in the area of relationships. Because in success, yeah, people have their personal beliefs. But, like, people are not going to go to the map and, like, fight you as much on some of these principles of success. You're not as invested in them. Oh, with relationships oh man like there are some stuff that people want to be true and they do not <laughs> want to hear you say that it is not true yeah and and they 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 will tear your face off and disintegrate you with acid before they will acknowledge that they are wrong and I was like you know great like here here this is this this is where we need to go next this needs this needs a, a market correction and you know so I, I decided to pursue that. Path.
2: All right. Well, speaking of which, let's start with judging a book by its cover. One of the things that you say in the book uh, when it comes to first impressions is the maxim might be don't judge a book by its cover and right or wrong. There's a good reason such advice is given because we do judge a book by its cover. Immediately and instinctively, we can't help it, and that cover is usually someone's face. We make up our minds about someone's assertiveness, beauty, competence, likability, and trustworthiness in less than a second. And like mind reading, more time doesn't noticeably change our opinions; it just increases our confidence. Um, You also talk about a number of different biases, like egocentric bias, and um, how readable people are. So, two questions come from this: How do we make better first impressions ourselves? And then more importantly, how do we, you know, judge our first impressions accurately? Because I remember reading that and it reminded me of a friend that I traveled with in Europe. And, you know, it, it, and it's funny because he was kind of anal and, and could be, you know, sort of annoying. And I remember he asked another one of our friends, does Srini hate me? I was, like, yeah. And he said, no, he's like, Srini just thinks you're an anal fuck. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is he's actually a very good friend to this day, like. And at first, I thought, you know, this guy's annoying as shit, but to this day, he's still a good friend. And my first impression was wildly inaccurate. And then on the the flip side of that, like, particularly in a dating context, I've met women where my first impression was like, this person is amazing. And it turns out I was completely wrong.
0: First
1: impressions are first impressions are really interesting because that is something you know the old maxim of first impressions matter. It's true, and the thing is that we're we're pretty good at them. That's the, in terms of reading what is on people's minds, their thoughts and feelings of people we're close to, family members, friends, spouses. We're terrible at that reading their thoughts and feelings, but in terms of just getting a read on someone holistically, a stranger, first impressions generally like roughly seventy percent. We're we're pretty accurate. Uh, there's been a lot of research on thin slicing, where if you if you show somebody a video of a teacher in a classroom, just a couple minutes, people's ability to say, is this person competent at their job? And it's is like I said, roughly 70% accuracy. Now again, that's way above chance, but also 70 is like a D in school. So it's certainly there's a lot of room to to improve. And that is the tricky thing, is that first impressions, the double-edged sword of first impressions is that we're, we're generally more accurate than, than we are. However, whatever impression we get, sticks. And as you quoted from the book, you know, we are immediately sizing people up. It is, that is, that just happens. There is no, like, not judging people. We do it immediately. And those things tend to stick. Now, to your first question, where you said, how can we make better first impressions? You know, what we need to do is we need to think about what kind of impression that we want to make. Now, a lot of people might hear that and think that sounds manipulative or that sounds fake. And I think there's a way to, to balance that, where not to do method acting and pretend to be someone that you're not, but to look at the, the group of different views. We're all somebody who's very different with our parents or our family, be different in dating contexts, probably very different in professional contexts. So I'm not saying pretend to be somebody else. I'm saying, which of these people that are in me that I am, you know, how do I need to present myself and comport myself in this situation to make a good first impression? So you're not trying to be fake. You're trying to say within my repertoire, which is what is appropriate here? And the thing is, it's like that is so important to think about because, like I said, people are going to... Generally, 70%, they're going to roughly uh, read you correctly. But more importantly, that's going to stick. So making a bad first impression really can last. And it's, it's difficult because of confirmation bias. It's difficult to change those first impressions. And, you know, even more so, and this is advice when thinking about making a first impression, but also about uh, the impression you make on others, is that if you make a bad first impression, people might not want to see you anymore. And if somebody else makes a bad first impression, you might not want to see them anymore. In other words, you know, because of kind of more statistics here than human behavior, if I give you one shot, you make a bad first impression, and I never see you again, I can't correct my judgments. So you're you're when you positively judge someone, you know, those are going to inevitably end up being more accurate because the second time, the third time, you're going to get to see the person again and you're gonna be able to test your judgments to a degree, versus if you never see somebody again you're never gonna be able to revise it. So we need to give people a second chance, but also we need to think about what impression we wanna make because if somebody writes you off, they're never gonna get a chance to update you know, their perspectives on you. Hmm. Wow.
2: You know, the other thing you talk about is um, body language and why it's not as accurate as we think because you, you know, you, I'm sure you've heard that quote of like 95% of communication is nonverbal, but you kind of do allude to that where you say pay attention to their you know, tone of voice less than their body language.
1: I mean, the issue of body language is definitely, we're always reading people, you know, the, the issue with is with conscious reading of body language. Subconsciously, certainly we're going to pick up on things uh, that somebody's doing. But when we sit there and try and pretend that we're Sherlock Holmes or like there's some Rosetta Stone for, for, you know, for body language, the research does not show that at all because the issue is first and foremost, you never know. Are they shivering because they're cold or are they shivering because they're nervous? You don't know. And especially with strangers, we don't have a baseline. You know, with, with your friends, you know, oh, he's not drumming his fingers because he's bored. That's his little habit. He's always doing that. Like, when we don't have that information, we can't read stuff. So deliberately trying to leverage body language really generally doesn't work. But like you said, one thing we, we can use is to focus more on the voice. Because when we can hear someone, but we can't see them, empathic accuracy only drops off about 4%. But when we can see someone, but we can't hear them, empathic accuracy drops off 54%. We get a lot more information, you know, from someone's voice than we do from seeing them. So body language just isn't that important. It has almost no correlation with lie detection. You know, the issue is in general with reading people we're really pretty bad at it. Nicholas Apple at the University of Chicago has done a lot of this research. And he found that, you know, in terms of reading the thoughts and feelings of strangers, you're only about accurate about 20% of the time with, you know, friends and family members, 30%. And that hits a peak of like 35% with spouses. So whatever you think is on, on the mind of your spouse or significant other, two thirds of the time you're wrong. You know, we're, we're just generally <laughs> really bad at this. Now we can get better, we can get better by being motivated. When you're talking about dating, first dates, people are actually more accurate than in general. And that is because there are stakes. Our brains are generally pretty lazy. You know, once there's something to be won or something to be lost, all of a sudden accuracy improves because now we're focused. That can help. But the truth is that the, the ceiling is actually pretty low for how much better we can get at this. What we really need to do if we want to be able to read people better is we need to focus less on improving our reading skills and focus more on improving the other person's readability, getting them to send stronger signals. And there are a number of things we can do to try to improve that. One is, as you and I were talking about earlier, is the issue of context. Context is really powerful. You know, if you're if you're on a first date, you know, over a drink or coffee. You're not going to get a lot from the person other than, you know, like what they choose to tell you versus if you were out playing a sport, you'd see like, how do they make decisions, you know, quickly? Do they cheat? You know, how well do they cooperate? You would all of a sudden getting a lot more information from that person by watching their behavior in a dynamic environment, you know, that's powerful. So con- manipulating context is powerful. Another thing that's powerful is getting other people in the mix, because I don't think anybody would think that if you only saw someone in the presence of their boss, you, you, you know you wouldn't be seeing the whole them. So other people can bring out facets and other sides of someone that you're trying to get a better understanding of. Finally, the other thing I would say is, is in terms of, I bring up the issue of controversial topics. You know, if you can get people to emotionally react to things, you're probably going to get more honest, insightful answers than if you're just talking about the weather.
5: Yeah.
2: Let's talk about friendship. Um, I really, you know, this was another section that really struck me. Uh, there are a couple of things that you say about friendship that really stood out to me. You said, you know, being friends means ignoring the strict accounting of favors. In fact, re- reciprocity is actually a profound negative friendship. Being in a hurry to repay a debt is often seen as an insult with buddies. We act like costs and benefits don't matter, or at least not as much. And then you say the weakness of friendship is also the source of its immeasurable strength. Why do true friendships make us happier than spouses or children? Because they're always a deliberate choice, never an obligation. Friendship is more real because either person can walk away at any time. It's fragility proves its purity. So I wanted to bring back a clip from a previous episode um, with Lydia Denworth, who um, wrote a book about the psychology yes. of friendship. I, I've um, and, heard
1: my
2: book. Yeah, I kind of figured as much. Um, I wanted to bring this back because it was a, a very interesting moment where we were um, talking about, you know, what happens when people move away and how friendships change in adult life. Take a listen.
6: It's just much harder to maintain a relationship when people move further apart, but it's not impossible. So it really depends on motivation again and and how much it matters and how I think what does happen is to be generous. We'll say that people get busy and then they get caught up with the new People in their life or their work and the longer things go when they haven't seen someone, the less connected they feel, the less up on the day to day of their life that person is. And so it's natural that it can fade away sometimes. And it's not actually the end of the world. This is one of the things I think is important. So when you said that it didn't feel reciprocated in the same way, that's the critical juncture where you, you can say to yourself, maybe this friend isn't this friendship isn't sustaining me in the same way and I'm going to let it go or I'm going to shuffle. The analogy I like to use is that if you think of your friends, as you've seen in the book of, you know, concentric circles, the people closest to you, and then a little further out, a little further out. When you have a friend like that, it doesn't mean that you have to not be friends with them anymore, but you shuffle the furniture of your friendship to an outer room, (laughs) right? So
2: I think I I wanted to bring that clip back in particular, because I think that, you know, I have seen, you know, friendships sort of not disintegrate, but we definitely have drifted as people have moved away. And um, the effort to stay in touch isn't reciprocal. It's not like when we don't see when we see each other, you know, not as terrible. It's just like old times. But I'm curious, just based on what you have said about reciprocity, like how you interpret that.
1: Yeah, I mean, the reciprocity issue is is just that we 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 aren't focused on that kind of strict accounting. You know, we, we assume the relationship's gonna be ongoing with a stranger. You don't know if you're gonna they're gonna you're gonna see them again, so you don't know if they're gonna pay it back. You know, it's an expression of trust that we don't immediately, you know, think about the accounting of, of favors. But you know, the issue with, with friendship, you know, is that distance does make it really hard. You know, men are especially bad here because you know women's friendships usually involve more talking, more opening up. Men's friendships, you know, tend to be more focused on activities, at least as far as research shows. Uh, they, they, I think they often talk about, like, women's friendships being face-to-face and men's friendships being shoulder-to-shoulder. And so it turns out that it ends up really bad because men are used to do things together when they're not proximate, when they're not near by each other. You can't do stuff, and when you can't do stuff, it often falls apart. So, no, it's, that's the tricky thing about adulthood is that yeah, it's like when friendships aren't proximate, we do get busy. It is harder to to keep up. And that's why, as I talk about in the book, one of the really critical things is that issue of time. The biggest arguments that friends have, you know, are over time, you know, and time is a costly signal. Time really shows that somebody matters. You know, I I only have 24 hours in a day. If you spend one hour a day with someone every day, you can only do that for 24 people. And you have to you know, so it, it's showing time is making time for people makes a huge difference because it shows a level of investment. And there was research from Notre Dame that looked at 8 million phone calls between people and, and basically said that when people kept in touch uh, every two weeks over the course of the study, those were the relationships that persisted. So I generally tell people it's like trying to stay in touch if you can every two weeks or so is a good way to sustain things because... Otherwise, yeah, it kind of falls by the wayside. It's great to meet up with an old old friend and have that feeling of you know it feels like we weren't we weren't really apart but like there is a there is kind of a survivor bias issue there where how many friendships you know it doesn't feel like that or we don't feel we can we relate to the person anymore or heck we forget that they're even there they're just buried in our contact list on our phones. so it really does matter time is huge that gets trickier. As we get older. And so what I point to is the issue of having rituals, having something that you do together, having something that's a part of your schedule, having something that is kind of on the calendar where it keeps you consistent, that it's not an appointment that's kind of artificial where this is something, hey, we always watch football together, or hey, you know, we always every every Tuesday night we do X. Having a kind of you know comfortable organic ritual, that's a good natural sustainable way to maintain a friendship over the long haul
2: yeah let's talk about uh Marriage, because I think that, you know, I I had like sort of a sigh of relief when reading this book. Because I remember reading somewhere that, you know, if you don't get married by a certain age, you're probably going to die sooner. I I don't remember where I read that. And I'm thinking, I'm 44 and still single. I'm screwed. I'll be dead within a few years. Um, And then I read your book. And, you know, one of the things that uh, you say is that if you're unhappily married, your health is likely to be notably worse than if you ever got hitched at all. A bad marriage makes you 35% more likely to fail ill and lops four years off your life. I thought, oh, Oh, sweet. Uh, you know, that, you know, that, that isn't going to make my mom feel any better Yeah, <laughs> you know, as an Indian mom. But uh, yeah. So let's talk about, it's like, where do we have all these sort of misunderstandings of relationships? Because there were so many things in this section that were completely counterintuitive to all the things that I had thought.
1: Oh yeah. That's, that's why I put a warning at the beginning of the, the section. Because I was just I remember. whereas like, okay, so a lot of people who are going to be surprised or are- or at least at first, are are not going to be happy. they and I just try and set people up where I'm like, hey, not gonna like everything you hear first, but I pro- I promise Frodo, we're gonna get you back to the Shire. Just give me some time here, and you know we gotta we gotta wade through some of this stuff because you know we've been we've been we've been sold a bill of goods, you know, in, in a lot of ways. We've been telling people that want to hear there's kind of these these attitudes, and things have changed. Things have changed. And we need to update a lot of those beliefs. But specifically to to what you're saying about, you know, you always see research that's saying, oh, married people are happier, married people are healthier. But the majority of that research, you know, commits survivor bias. Basically, they're just taking the list of married people, measuring how healthy and happy they are, and then taking a list of single people, measuring how healthy. And so, oh, hey, look, see, marriage marriage makes people happier. But that's not the correct way to run that study. What you need to do, if you want to see if, getting married makes you happy and healthier. You have to include the divorced, the widowed, and the separated people in with the married people. And then what you see is the numbers are very different. Basically, marriage doesn't make you happy and healthy. A happy marriage makes you, you know, happy and healthy. You know, happy marriage has profound positive effects. There's one study I, I referenced in the book where, you know, a, a, it was a recent study from Australia where they said that we may be underestimating just how happy a happy marriage makes you. However, you know, is being divorced is one of the few things that leaves a permanent dent in people's happiness. Only I can only find divorce and extended unemployment are the two things where people never seem to fully return to baseline. And if people have been divorced, even if they get remarried, we can still see in the data a carrying over of that less health, less happiness, You know, so basically marriage has become very much winner take all. If you are in a happy marriage, the benefits are profound. And if you're in an unhappy marriage, like you said, it's far worse than being single. The uh, the unhappy, the uh, people who are unhappily married are far less happy than people who are, who were never married at all. So it's not this kind of panacea. It's more like we need to do it right. Now, the upside to all this is research from Eli Finkel at Northwestern says that because we've had this kind of semi-dismantling of marriage, you know, it used to be very constraining. It used to be very enforced by culture, by community, by group. There are strict rules. Marriage was very unfair, you know, but it was very stable. Now we've had a loosening of that. So marriage is much more do-it-yourself. You know, you can, it's not as unfair because you can rewrite the rules. However, that's made it less stable, you know, much higher divorce rate, or more recently, fewer people getting married at all. The upside of all of this is that because it's do-it-yourself, if we roll up our sleeves, if we're proactive, the happiest marriages now are happier than any throughout history. If you do marriage right, right now, you can have the happiest marriages that have ever existed. But the issue is, We can't just rely on our context. We can't rely on passively showing up. We have to be a lot more proactive if we want one of those happiest marriages ever.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of which, there's some really kind of funny things you say about uh, sort of the phases through which, you know, a relationship develops. Uh, You say running around like a delusional Uh, junkie, endlessly professing your love, acting like a maniac and throwing caution to the wind as you ignore work, forget to pay the bills and text your obsession 300 times a day, that's pretty clear and a costly signal. What do people often being wooed say? Show me you're crazy about me. Bingo. Romantic love not only overrides rationality, but also signals the overriding of rationality. And then you say the most vital and the most wonderful form of crazy that love brings, idealization. As we all know, people in love idealize their partners. It's one of the most recognized hallmarks of love. Uh, But you also talk about the fact that that idealization eventually starts to fade.
1: Yeah, basically that the issue about love is that initially it's passive. You know, it just happens to us. We don't flip a love switch. We don't decide to fall in love with somebody. It just happens, you know. And the danger there is that because it's passive, we feel like maybe we could always be passive about it. And what we don't realize is that entropy kind of kicks in. Is that basically those feelings for many, not all, sort of die down, and that it's going to be incumbent upon us, if we want to make a long-term relationship or a marriage work, to be more deliberate about it. And I point to other research that shows, you know, fairy tale visions uh, actually predict negative things because, again, passivity you know, it's just, it's all going to work out. It's all fine. We're soulmates. We are meant to be with one another. That kind of tells you that you can rest on your laurels. And that's not what the research shows, you know, is that in general, we need to be more proactive. And one of the things I talk about is that basically trying to use what in psychology is called emotional contagion, is the idea that environments, and you and I've talked a lot about context, is that environments Whatever feeling we get from an environment, we associate with the people we're with. we can leverage this. So when time goes by in a relationship, feelings start to die down, often people get in a rut. You know, people just, you know, Netflix and pizza again. But the truth is, the research shows that when they split couples up in the groups and they had one group go on exciting dates and one go on pleasant dates, the exciting dates won because that excitement, you know, going horseback riding or roller coasters, you know, That carried over. We associated Pavlov style, those feelings with our spouse. That can revitalize and keep that energy there. A lot of people think, oh, you know, we went on exciting dates because we were in love. Well, that's true. But the reverse is also true. You fell in love because you did fun and exciting things together. And usually as a relationship goes on, people stop doing that. And when they stop doing that, they stop getting the benefits of emotional contagion. Now it's completely on your partner to be cool, fun, interesting, and vibrant all the time. And nobody's like that, especially after a hard day at work. We need to, like, actually be deliberate about having those fun feelings. And again, we can't flip them on, but we can do exciting, fun stuff to try and, you know, leverage emotional contagion to keep those step ball in the air, to keep those feelings going when they inevitably die down a little bit.
2: It, it's funny because I, I quoted that I remember I put that on Instagram saying you want a guaranteed way not to get laid take a girl to dinner um, I like I try to avoid dinner dates like the plague because of exactly what you said and I didn't realize I ha- now I have research to back it up so if any girl tries to challenge me on this and say let's do something low-key I'll just send her this quote from your book
1: I, I, I don't think I put a quote in there about not about getting, about getting laid but <laughs> no you didn't
2: okay. but you know I, you remember like I, I rewrote it that said translation okay. you know if you, if you don't want to get laid Laid, go out to dinner with somebody.
1: <laughs> I mean, well, well, and the other issue there is what we were talking about earlier with the issue of reading people. Where again, oh, yeah. dinner dates—you're just sitting there; it's static. Yeah. You're not learning as much about the other person. So, for both supporting a relationship in terms of like having vibrant, energetic fun, you want to do that. But when you're both vetting each other in the first few dates, you want to be getting more accurate signals. So, I mean, to your point, it's like you always want to be doing more fun, more exciting stuff. Otherwise, it's almost like you're kind of playing on hard mode. Like, you're you're not going to be able to read people as well. You're not going to be able to leverage the emotions in the environment. You are just playing on hard mode. The other person better be, like, in a great mood and, you know, uh, on amphetamines and energetic. And <laughs> like they, they, they better be, like, on their A game because otherwise there's just no margin for... Getting to know each other, for creating mm-hmm. those vibrant feelings—like you, you, you want to be able to, like, really give it a shot. And the thing is, we get lazy. You know, we get lazy. We do what's easy. We don't do what's really effective. And I, I think that's—it's a big problem. It's a really big problem, yeah. especially now coming out of the pandemic. Uh, you know, it's like I think mm-hmm. a lot of people are going to need to to find a way to mix it up a little bit.
2: Yeah, I it's funny because my default go-to these days is bowling. I am like bowling is relatively inexpensive and kind of fun.
1: I mean, you know, playing a game is a great, is a great thing to do. Cause again, yeah. you get a lot of information about the person. You see how they play, see how they make decisions and handle things. But also it's, it's fun. And there's some lively competition in there. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's a cool, you know, that's a cool, fun thing to do. And, I think we all appreciate that. And it's also good if you are not completely reliant on the other person to be entertaining or, or, or maybe mm-hmm. for the alcohol, but to actually do something which is kind of inherently fun that you enjoy. You know, hey, at least you get a consolation prize if the, if the date doesn't go well or you don't like each other. Or at least you still manage to have yeah. fun.
2: No, I I remember I was trying to convince this girl to go ice skating and she's like, no, let's do something low key. Nothing. And that was kind of it. And, you know, we met up for dinner and it just, you know, there was nothing there. I was like, all right, well, you know, and that was the end of it. I was like, you're not. And, you know, she was really sweet. And I told her, I was like, honestly, just based on our interaction, it doesn't seem like you're that into me. I don't want to waste my time with this.
1: Um, I mean, I think it's tricky. Some people are in a habit or have a clear idea about like what they expect. I I think. You know, often first dates, people want something kind of like low investment and like easy, yeah. to, easy to to get out of. But I think we, I think we all have to kind of balance it, where it's like, yeah, I understand you low investment. You don't know, you don't know this person. You don't want it to be too difficult. On the other hand, right. you also want to give it a fighting chance. So, like, that's 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 something that I think we need to think about. But yeah, it's like if the other person is just you know totally got to do it this way, well then yeah, it makes it a lot harder.
5: Yeah.
2: All right. I, I think the other parts that really struck me were the things about fighting in a relationship The uh, fun fact, you mentioned marriage counseling was created by the Nazis. Do you got to say more about that?
1: Uh, it totally was. It was part of a part of a mm. Nazi eugenics program. Uh, initially. Ma- it makes people feel any better. It doesn't work. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, marriage counseling is not very effective. And, that, and that's not that's not to say that the idea of marriage counseling and getting some help is a bad thing. The real issue with marriage counseling, uh, it's, it's terrible, terrible origins aside. Um, is it most people wait too long to go? Most, most people like they're already, it's already mission critical. The, 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 cancer has already reached, you know, stage four by the time they're even seeing a therapist. and And by then it's, it's often too late. Mm hmm.
2: Yeah, I remember my first roommate out of college was one of the, the you know, earliest guys to get married. And I remember he was going to marriage counseling at the church before the marriage. And I was just like, what? And, you know, now, after all these years, I was like, oh, that makes all the sense in the world, because he said there are inevitably going to be things that you actually don't talk about unless you have an objective third party who forces you to talk about them.
1: I mean, that, that can be really helpful if. If you don't know if you don't know what to do and you're both stuck in bad habits, you know, it can be really, really powerful. It's just, again, most people, I think, wait an average of six years to go to marriage counseling. And yeah. by then, the you know, what I talk about in the book is this is research by John Gottman. Is that basically idealization? You know, the hallmark of, of romantic love that is. That is what he refers to as positive sentiment override. Basically, you are positively biased in favor of your partner. If if they do something great, it's because they are absolutely wonderful. And if they do something bad, they must have made a mistake. The issue is that over the course of a marriage, if there are hiccups and problems and we don't talk about them, we don't get it out in the open, what can happen is negative sentiment override, where you start to devilize your partner. You start to see them as out to get you or out to sabotage your happiness. You know, is that they don't care; their 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 time mean, and that is largely because people aren't communicating. One of the things that Gottman found is that you know a lot of people are afraid. Oh, geez, if we argue, we're going to fight, and then mm-hmm. that's going to be the end of the marriage. And that's really not the case. Uh, uh, Was well, only forty percent of the time do screening matches you know result in divorce. More often, what results in divorce is that people aren't communicating. And so problems can't be resolved. Complaining is actually a positive. As long as you don't personalize it, raising issues allows them to be dealt with. And as Gottman found,
6: a lot of issues are never
1: going to be resolved. 69% (laughs) of ongoing marital issues never get resolved. But far from being depressing information, that is true among happy and unhappy couples. Meaning that you don't have to solve every problem in a relationship. It is much more about the regulation of conflict than the resolution of conflict.
2: Yeah, I, I think that that was the one that really struck me the most because um, my roommate, my my old roommate, and I were, were sitting for somebody here, and he was telling me about you know the situation with a girl that he broke up with, and you know he said that they would get into shouting matches, and he realized from that relationship, the very thing you're talking about here, because, you know, we both had fathers who kind of taught us to deescalate. Like that is what we were taught. You know, my mother's temper, my mom and dad, like deescalate, like just ignore it. And he told me, he said, what he didn't realize until she kind of um, made him really aware of this is that by not fighting, it was actually much more terrifying because she's like, who the hell knows? Like, if you're going to just erupt and let it all explode, or you are going to kill me? She says, I don't know what you're thinking when you don't fight back. And that had never occurred to me because I th- always tended to, like, move towards de-escalation in any one of these situations.
1: No, this is this is actually a really common fact. You know, Gottman has a funny line I quote in the book where he, he says that uh, if you're in a long term relationship and you've never had a fight, please do that immediately. Um, yeah. You know, it's like because people don't talk, they don't they don't bring it up. And specifically, Gottman specifies, you know, what he calls the 4 horsemen, horse—the four things that lead to divorce one than eighty percent of the time. And, you know, two of them are criticism and stonewalling. And stonewalling is that issue of somebody raises an issue, somebody, you know, has something about the relationship they have a problem with, and you just shut down. And, unsurprisingly, you know stonewalling is something men are much more likely to do is and he showed that this actually operates on a physiological level that women's stress hormones die down quicker men stay higher longer and a lot of men kind of get flooded and they just kind of shut down in response but the problem is when you shut down the other person doesn't feel like you're listening it can be misinterpreted again communication it can be misinterpreted as you don't care you're not listening And so there can be a difficult dynamic where men are more likely to stonewall, women are more likely to criticize, and the combination can be really deadly. Where instead of raising an issue neutrally, women are more inclined to personalize it, and men, instead of calmly dealing with something and responding, men are more likely to shut down. And this can be a deadly combination. So it's like it's really important, you know, to depersonalize problems. You just make it about the issue, not about the person's character, and, you know, to not Stonewall, to respond, to engage. And if you are feeling flooded, like this is a little bit overwhelming, fine, take a break, come back to it. But, yeah, the, the combination of criticism and stonewalling can be absolutely lethal, and it's, it's exactly what you're talking about. Uh-huh.
2: So let's talk about this final section of the book, which is really about sort of community and and loneliness. One of the things that you say is that the world is more connected than ever, yet we're more individualistic than we've ever been. makes you wonder how much we actually need others and in what ways. And then you go on to say the health and happiness effects of sustained loneliness on your body is to use a technical term, poop your pants scary. It makes me want to run outside, hug the first stranger I see, and maybe reconsider My career choice, loneliness sends your brain into perpetual high alert mode. Um, And I wanted to bring back a clip um, about sort of living in this increasingly individualistic world from my conversation with Alcaraz. Take a listen. The United States right now does not have a culture of collective action. We did once upon a time. Now we really don't. We've become collective action. The key word there is collective. And we have become an increasingly individualistic society. And so part of why I think the labor movement in the United States right now is, is weaker than it's been since, you know, early in the 19th century is because of the degree to which we've individualized our social contract. And the only way to do things like reduce the college of college or
1: graduate school is through, you got it right, collective action.
2: So what do you make of that, I mean, based on the research that you've done for your book?
1: I mean, our culture is very fractured, you know, and we don't have this clear idea. Now, America's always drawn a lot of strength from the idea of being a nation of immigrants, being this like group of disparate that creates a lot of creativity and dynamism, and we don't we don't stick to rules as much just because they've always been the way. So it's it's been a much more, you know, vigorous and dynamic culture. On the other hand, in terms of accomplishing things, it can be difficult. And again, more personally, as I get into in, in the book, it can be lonely because we don't have those bonds. And what I found fascinating, I, I didn't even believe it at first when I was doing the research, is Faye Alberti, who teaches at the University of York, she's a historian. She said, you know, before the 19th century, Loneliness as an experience almost didn't exist, which, like I said, sounded crazy to me, but the point is that before that time, we were all embedded in a culture, a religion, a nation, a community, a tribe, a family. We had those bonds, and that is actually much more critical to the issue of loneliness, because John Cacioppo, who's done you know, most the bulk of the big work in terms of loneliness, uh, he found that lonely people don't spend any less time with people than non-lonely people do on average. Again, sounds crazy, but here's the thing. We've all felt lonely in a crowd. So being proximate to people, I mean, it's nice, it's good, but you can still feel lonely when people are around. So loneliness isn't just about isolation. And this ties the two together. What Alberti said and what uh, Cacioppo said, is the issue of loneliness is how you feel about your relationship. You know, just because we travel and we're away from our family or friends doesn't mean we feel lonely because we feel the bonds are there. We feel like we're still a part of something people care about us. But if people are around and we don't feel any connection to them, we can feel horribly lonely because it's about how you feel about your relationships, how meaningful they are. And again, in the past, we had that. Before the 19th century, you were a part of a religion, tribe, nation, community. And you felt like I am a part of something, and even if I am apart from those people, I still have strong connections to them. Thinking about me, I would sacrifice for them; they would sacrifice for me. And that's the issue because loneliness, you know, is the downside. The upside is solitude. Solitude has profound positives. Loneliness is correlated with pretty much every negative health metric you can imagine. You know, I, I said in the book that. I was surprised that insurance companies don't mandate you put the book down and, you know, go see your friends, you know, because it's really, really bad. You know, the stress hormone elevation due to loneliness is the equivalent of a physical assault. It's like getting punched in the face. This is what Johan Hardy wrote. And meanwhile, solitude, Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General of the United States, said solitude is protective against all these things. So what's the difference? Again, it's that issue of not necessarily the people approximate. proximate, But that issue of how we feel about our relationships, do we have meaningful connections? I might not be with my friends and family, but if I know that they're there, I know I have a strong connection, then it's solitude. Then I'm just taking some, a breather, taking some time apart. Solitude is really powerful, you know, been correlated with, you know, increased creativity, the productivity, you know, we need some time apart. But when we're apart, we want to feel like those connections are still there. So really, this is something that has dramatically, dramatically changed where we used to always feel a part of something. Now our society has become very individualistic since the 19th century. And it's now granted, there's been a lot of positive improvement in terms of, you know, technology, the wealth of the planet. You know, we've unlocked tremendous power by, by making society somewhat more individualistic. But I, as I talk about in the book, we, we kind of also lost something in the deal because we need that feeling of being connected and it's harder to come by now. It's, it's not the default. It's not passively there. You can be on your own and there are downsides to that.
2: Yeah. Uh, so in doing the research for this book and, and writing this book and learning all these things that you have about uh, human behavior and, and relationships, how has that impacted your personal, professional and romantic relationships?
1: Well, it's funny because, like I said, I've never been been great in this arena. And it was very weird, like, writing this during the pandemic. You know, I I often joke to people that when I was writing Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the sixth sixth chapter of my first book um, was all about work-life balance. And I was probably sleeping five hours a night and driving myself crazy (laughs) while while writing about work-life balance. And here I am writing about relationships uh, during pandemic lockdown. So I... I don't, I don't know. I'm definitely not going to write my next book on mortality. Uh, but anyway, like there's, <laughs> there's, there's, you know, there's some tremendous irony there. Literally the deal for my book closed two weeks before California locked down uh, for the pandemic. So I all of a sudden, I had already decided to write the book, but all of a sudden it took on this like new meaning. Like, Oh my God, we're all going to need this. I better, I better do a good job. But I have certainly changed the time issue in terms of friends deliberately Making time, you know while I was writing the book it was it was crazy because you know I had to keep telling it, it's like okay don't don't talk to people, just write, and now, of course, that flips to stop writing, just talk to people and so mm-hmm. like going from writing a book to marketing a book is a shift, but also in terms of my personal relationships, just making sure that I'm seeing friends that I'm making time for them, you know. That's really critical. and luckily in terms of promoting the book, I am reaching out to more people and that's been kind of helpful. The second part that I talk about with friendships is the issue of vulnerability. and this is not some place where I've ever been I've, I've ever been strong just opening up and you know talking more about your your weaknesses, your fears your concerns. This is really powerful. I mean the University of Pennsylvania research shows that you know if, if you don't, open up. It's not a bad for the relationship. It's bad for you. Uh, it prolongs minor illnesses, increases the chance of a first heart attack, uh, reduces the chance that you're going to survive that heart attack. Um, being open and vulnerable, having those, and that's what creates close friendships because open and vulnerable, it's another costly signal. Telling people information that could be used against you, that displays trust. And the best way to create trust in someone else is to display trust towards them, to say, this is safe. I trust you. And not merely by using empty words, but by demonstrating, telling them something which may not put you in the best light. That's a really powerful way to communicate, not through empty words, to communicate, you know, on a deeper level that I trust you. I care about you. I don't think you'll hurt me. And this really, really matters. Robin Dunbar, who a lot of people might know through the Dunbar number in terms of friendships, as a professor at Oxford, uh, he looked at all the research on, you know, friendships and and health. And in the end he said, look, you know what's gonna determine if you have a heart attack, you know what's gonna determine whether or not you're alive in a year? It's basically, do you smoke? And how many friends do you have? They're like, yeah, nutrition, exercise, all that stuff matters. But those first two are so heads and tails above the rest. Do you smoke? And you know, uh, do you have good friendships? That's how much this matters. So to me I've been thinking a lot about it. I've been making more time deliberately, conscientiously, and I've been open up. I talk about in the book I talk about the scary rule. You know, if if it's scary, say it, you know, you can, you can be incremental, you know, you don't have to confess the murders immediately, but like, but like, like, you know, you gotta, you gotta open up a little bit because the research shows if if in a long-term friendship, if, if the amount of small talk goes up, the quality of the friendship goes down, you need Mm. to talk about more serious stuff to feel like you're in a good, deep friendship. Because as Aristotle said a friendship is another self. A friend is another self. And the research validates that, that it is like another you. And so we treat our friends and ourselves a little bit better. And, and I, but since writing the book, I've certainly tried to do that. Mm-hmm.
2: I have two last questions for you. Uh, You wrote a book uh, previously about why everything we know about success is wrong. And in that time, you've become quite successful yourself. That book did extremely well. You've got this wildly popular blog. Um, How has your personal definition of success changed and evolved throughout this
1: journey?
5: Um, I still think at
1: the fundamental level, it's aligned with what I wrote about in the book in the sense that you need to have a personal definition of success because these days, you know, the, the doors to the office do not close at 5 PM work doesn't shut down. Work will never shut down. Your boss will never tell you, Oh, you know, Hey, you've done enough. It's like, there will always be more. And that's a dangerous path that didn't exist before. Before work didn't happen on the weekends. You've got an external signal that you're done. Now you can work 24 seven. So, just doing more, it will drive you crazy. You need to have a personal definition of success. You need to define for yourself when is enough. And that is something, honestly, I wrote about it, but I've also struggled with it because, you know, especially living a, a life online, uh, you can always do more. And I'm doing, I do a lot of research. I'm, I'm not kind of writing a blog about my personal thoughts and feelings and what I ate for lunch and I could always be working harder. And drawing those lines has been really difficult for me. But so for me, if anything, I've doubled down on that, where I need to draw the lines myself. Nobody else is going to tell me, good, you did it, you're done. You know, I need to say, where's enough for me? And that was really hard the past couple of years, because again, you know, pandemic being cut off from people, it's tricky where you're trying to find a balance and you're just not getting any external signals because you're of you're kind of on a moon base. Uh, and I was you praised know, writing the book. For me, I, I need to really draw that line where, okay, what is, what is enough? And I think, I've, I think I've reached a point where I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable in terms of I don't need to have everything. I don't have to be number one in the New York Times bestseller list. I don't ha- Every blog post does not have to be a home run. But on the other hand, having high standards, it has benefited me. So I try and draw a line where I can say, you know, as long as I'm able to pay my bills and live my life, am I happy with this work? Am I better than I was yesterday? Am I happy with what I'm doing? In the Venn diagram of what I enjoy writing and what my audience enjoys reading, you know, as long as I can pay my bills, as long as I can, you know, am I satisfied with this? Do I think it's helpful? Do I think it's entertaining? that's kind of the North star that I use.
2: Wow. I can relate. Uh, <laughs> well, I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of
1: our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I oh, there's a quote, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna butcher. Uh, but it was a, it was a jazz musician who's, who basically said that being a genius was just like learning how to be yourself. And I think this is kind of the through line that has been running through our discussion where we talked about you know validatories and compliance versus you know doing the hard work, of figuring out what your strengths are, what you're good at, how you fit in, how a personal definition of success. I I think being unmistakable. There's really only one way to be unmistakable, and that really is to dive down and be yourself. That may sound cliche or pat or like some, you know Instagram carousel, but you know, we are different from other people, but we have to dig a little deeper, you know, what makes you special? What are your unique strengths? There's so much research on signature strengths. People who do the things that they are uniquely good at are dramatically happier. It's a great way to be more successful. I think being unmistakable you know, is when you don't try deliberately to conform to the standard default rules of doing things, but you say, how can I do this my way? It will be, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to defy the laws of physics, I'm not going to do anything, with, but I'm going to bring my own something to this. I'm going to look deep inside myself, find my strengths, develop my skills, find my unique perspective and angle. And whatever I do, I'm going to imbue it with that that is, in the end, I think the only way to be unmistakable is to use your own uniqueness and put it out there on display.
2: Hmm. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us to share your story, your wisdom, uh, and your insights with listeners. As I said earlier, now you can see why I needed two hours to have this conversation yeah. with you. Uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the book, and everything that you're up to?
5: That's stamps.com. Code Program
1: Uh, the first book Spark on Throwing Tree. The new book is plays well with others. uh, Available in bookstores everywhere. And uh, in terms of me, the best way to follow the 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 stuff I've been posting and doing is to join my newsletter. My URL is a little difficult for most people to remember or (laughs) spell because it's it's a it's a it's a japanese inside joke uh but if people if if people go to ericbarker.org that's e-r-i-c-b-a-r-k-e-r dot org uh they will be redirected to my hard to spell hard to pronounce uh blog and uh joining my newsletter is the best way to uh, keep abreast of uh of the work on doing.
2: amazing and for everybody listening we will wrap the show